0: Hello and welcome to the ONTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton with the ONTIC Center for Connected Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the US State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of safety, security and protection through conversations with leaders in the field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton, and I'm here today with Nathan Mills, the Chief Physical Security Officer at Zoom. Nathan has extensive international experience as a Foreign Service Officer in the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Diplomatic Security and as the Director of Security Risk and Crisis Management at General Electric. Nathan. Welcome to Antic's Protective Intelligence Podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Fred. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this discussion. I know we were fortunate enough to set together at a table at uh, OSAC, and it seems like we both have swam in similar waters in the
1: past. I think we have. We uh crossed paths maybe at different uh, generations out there, but certainly in the same areas of the world.
0: I think you have a fascinating backstory, and I was telling folks uh, here at the company uh, you might be a unicorn in this space, uh, and and I can get into that a little bit later. But for our audience, uh, help us understand how did you get into the security business?
1: Sure. Uh, so it is a, a, a kind of a roundabout way, uh, maybe not traditional. But I went to school for electrical engineering. I have an electrical engineering degree. And as I was looking for jobs, I found that the Department of State was hiring for foreign service officers, electrical engineers. And I was like, I didn't understand how that connected. My my view of the world was obviously very limited as I was a young kid. But I went up to the recruiter, talked to them, found out that it sounds like an exciting job to live, live and work around the world. So I took the plunge. And um, luckily enough, I got in. And as an engineer in the Department of State, going around the world, I was able to work with regional security officers and diplomatic security agents, um, obviously usually one and the same, um, and got to learn a lot more about how they view security programs, how they build security programs. And putting my technical background to use inside that realm kind of lit a fire in me. I was kind of excited by, hey, how can this, these two things kind of join together and, and uh, provide a value to the government and then maybe to private sector in the future? So I was able to leverage that. I, I was able to get the State Department to pay for a master's degree in strategic intelligence. So I kind of brought that to the floor from an academic perspective as well. And then when I was looking for maybe what's next after the Department of State, I started dipping my toe in the water and realized that my skill set was very valuable in the private sector and kind of jumped right in and then kind of built my own personal brand a little bit, but then also was able to leverage my experiences in such a way that became valuable to to private sector companies. And it kind of, the the rest is history, if you say.
0: Now, Nathan, for those that are not familiar with uh, a security engineering officer, or as we know them to be, SEOs,
1: could you help
0: us unpack what that job involves and the kind of
1: work that you did? Happy to. Uh, it's a fascinating career path. And for those that are interested in security and have a technical background, if you want to live and work around the world doing that, it is a fantastic job to have. So in a nutshell, what it really is, is the program owner for all the technologies that protect the facilities the information and the employees of the department of state and the U S government that is underneath the auspices of the department of state in the embassies and consulates around the world. And that can do every, that can be anything from the perimeter protection such as, uh, hardline doors and x-ray machines and explosion detection equipment to the cameras, to the access control systems that are protecting the, the secondary or third layer, uh, tertiary, pardon me, layers of uh, the embassy that as you get into more secured areas. And then one unique aspect of the SEO world, which I think is uh, attractive to a lot of people, is we are, or they are, <laughs> my previous <laughs> life, badged as TSCM experts, so technical surveillance countermeasures, so bug sweeps, kind of anti, what's the term there, Fred? The uh, counter espionage side of things as it relates to uh, the US government being a target overseas.
0: Yeah, looking for all those uh, bugs and listening devices, uh, most of which are nation state antics.
1: Exactly right. And one of the things that we may get into a little bit in our conversation, but that I find fascinating between you know the public and the private kind of dichotomy that I I've been able to live is you know when you look at um, time on target as one of the uh, the critical elements of a of a of an espionage uh, plan the ability for us in the department of state to manage the threats that are that are focused on one footprint if you will at a certain city that has, you know, a 99-year lease versus the private sector that is a little bit more nimble and, you know, has leases in large-scale buildings, et cetera, that, that are only one or two years maybe or five years in length. That dynamic uh, is really interesting as it plays into how you how you build your technology strategy, how you build your security strategy as a whole, and how you educate your employees. So it's very interesting.
0: That's a, that is. That's a fascinating aspect. Uh, as, as you and I both know, you, you look at most of the embassy and consulates around the world. I mean, these are fixed structures that have been there literally forever. And uh, defending them from a range of different threat actors is, is simply not easy. And I would like to say just uh, as a shout out for our old outfit, um, security engineering officers, SEOs, the kind of work that you did in that job uh, you guys are really unsung heroes in uh, safeguarding America's secrets abroad.
1: Thank you very much for that. I appreciate that. And I agree with you, too.
0: Now, Nathan, you've had some impressive experience leading security operations on a global scale. What tools or skills have you developed that have helped you to succeed in this role?
1: Great question. I I think the most recognizable skill that I've, I've honed over time now and it, it's maybe it's becoming a little cliche uh, to hear this, but I think some some of your previous um, uh, uh, podcast uh, guests have said the same thing: is to first understand the business before I put my security hat on. And the more I'm able to be able to speak the language of the revenue organization or of the business development side, or even of the engineering side, if you're in a software company like I am currently and I have been in the past, the ability for me to be able to do that, to then be able to to uh, put a lens of, now here's how I can see risk to our revenue generating opera- operations and what my experience in security operations can bring value to protecting those those people, those, those facilities and the intellectual property that we produce as a, a revenue generating organization. So I think that in it alone is probably the most valuable thing that I've worked on over time because it does take time. Um, one of the maybe pitfalls of government work is that you get siloed into your very black and white, heavy governance and heavy bureaucratic approach to security where everything has to be leveraged by the 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 uh, governance documents that you've created the policies the standards the the, the fam and the fa as we used to call it the foreign right. affairs manual the foreign affairs handbook and in private sector it's a little bit different you you're you're a little bit more dynamic in how you can approach your your policies and how you implement the policies and how you train against the policies and so that is probably where i've uh, i've spent a majority of my time being able to um increase my learning
0: and you know you're working in a industry and in a company that uh i think back over just the evolution of technology nathan with just my career looking back and your company zoom is become almost like the word google and you think of the success over the pandemic and how you provide such a vital business continuity resource to the private sector
1: completely yeah it's it's very interesting to work for a company that has become a verb uh, and there's a lot of unique risks that come with that and when you when you work for a company that is relatively new to the marketplace and kind of jumped on this on the on the scene uh, rapidly. And I did this in my past too, as it related to to previous before Zoom, working at other companies that were uh, innovative in their approach to the market. When you change and you grow so fast, the mentality and the culture around a company in regards to the growth stage of an IPO and, and being new and having a lot of attention, uh, that risk profile is very different than the, okay, now you're established, you've been built, people are using your products, you have a, a market, now you're in different places in the world. Now you have people traveling a lot more. Now you have uh, maybe an expanding portfolio of products. How does the physical security element come to play and help educate you know the executives and other people that are Maybe not familiar with a mature physical security organization. How do you how do you adjust how you do that inside of um, inside of a company that has very different cultural background than maybe you've seen in in your previous experience? So it's been really fascinating, and I've I've enjoyed the ride.
0: We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment, but first I wanted to tell you a little bit about Antex Center for Connected Intelligence. In the world of safety, security, and protection, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the ONTIC Center for Connected Intelligence. The center is a hub for the ongoing exchange of security strategies and best practices, insights on current and past trends, and sharing valuable information through expert discussion and analysis. It's made up of seasoned experts across a wide range of disciplines. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. Now, Nathan, let's drill down a little bit. Uh, Tell us how you've gone about structuring your security program and what resources you leverage to be more
1: efficient. Sure. So... When I came out of the Department of State, um, I think I keep this same mentality uh, when I came to, to General Electric first, and now to Zoom. But my my preference, and I think industry bears this now, of having a converged physical cybersecurity team is truly essential to productivity and efficiency as it relates to kind of security operations for a company nowadays. You have the infosec threats, you have the physical threats, you have um, Risks associated to brand and reputational um, um, risks and threats that are out there. All those things kind of coming together helps me understand if a company is really built that way hierarchically uh, in their security program. Then it helps me inform how I'm going to build my team. And so the value that we can bring to the protective intelligence side, so protective operations, I think is a very important pillar of of uh, the traditional security operations. And I and I. I have built that inside of uh, Zoom, and, and we also have had that inside of my previous uh, employers. Um, I would also say that the operational side, so kind of getting the basics right. I was lucky enough in my current role to come in and build it from scratch, and I I, I don't over sell how imp- how unique that is. Um, but it was a unique opportunity to to prove out, okay, if I really think I know what I'm talking about, it's time to prove it. Okay, here we go. And so having, having technology pillars, having uh, protective operations pillars, having operational um, center pillars like a GSOC, et cetera, and then having geographic pillars, I think is really essential to um, kind of that command and control approach to physical security. So as it relates to tools that I've used and kind of resources I've used, um, I try to engage with the industry as much as possible. So going to the conferences, the the large ones through ASIS and and at the GSX conference, and et cetera, uh, those are important to me to be able to kind of meet men- and and network and be mentored by people that have kind of come before me. But I would also say I've I've leveraged like the Security Executive Council as an example, SEC. Um, as I was coming out from government, I learned about them and they have next generation leadership uh, programs, et cetera. So I think that's a very good resource to use. And then just the easy ones such as LinkedIn, et cetera, being able to go out there and be proactive in how you build your own network and how you build your own brand and you know, what are what are some people saying out there about personnel security and and security operations that maybe resonate with me, and then I can kind of find my way and and understand where I can bring value to the industry, let alone to my company.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And like we were chatting at our dinner table there in Washington, D.C., it's rare to be able to create your own uh, security department anymore. And uh, you certainly have done a wonderful job there at Zoom. Now, what advice do you have for security teams who lead operations on a global scale? And if I could drill down a little more with that, Nathan, what are the three most important things to keep in mind that you would recommend to those that are out there wanting to be the the next Nathan Mills at Zoom?
1: The top three, that's a good question, Fred. I appreciate that one. What, what I would say from a global scale, one of the things that I've learned is How do you do more with less? And I think that's obviously a tired cliche. But leveraging the relationships is something that I think a lot of practitioners might overlook. They may think that, and I've seen this in myself as I was kind of cutting my teeth in the industry. Is I think I know the best solution to a certain problem. And although that may be true, the ability for me to get it in front of the right people at the right time to be able to uh, in Influence change is the hardest part about it. So, what as I was building the program, the one thing I I constantly talked about with my team was build the relationships with intentionality. Know who your stakeholders are within our groups and reach out to them. Build a cadence. Learn more about them. You know, what what is their family life? You know, learn more about where they came from. What are their interests? You know, kind of become um, an indispensable part of that person's. Um, schedule as they as they go through their business and when i when we were doing that we focused on a few different different uh, pillars there so in zoom it's px uh, in my previous work it's been hr hr teams so human resources person um, and personnel experience personal experience those teams are connected directly to the employees to the behaviors of the employees to the the career development of the employees that's a very important um uh, uh, stakeholder for us, uh, least of which is going to be driving your workplace violence prevention program, as an example. So know who those people are, make friends with them, and and get to get to know their programs and what what keeps them up at night, as an example. Another one is the compliance and ethics type side. Um, so usually uh, focused on the legal aspects of that. They are very important to how you run cases, how you do investigations, how you uh, overlap with the HR side as it relates to employee relations and, and what some of the employment law aspects are going to have. And then I would say the a third group um, that is... Uh, what's it's inherent to mine, but it's it may not be for a lot of your listeners is the cyber side, infosec. So that converge stuff I talked about before. Understanding how your your program, how your your business thinks about information security is going to be essential to your business. How do you ha- how do you grant access to uh, critical intellectual property, crown jewels, uh, data data centers, cloud? data centers? Who, how do you deal with vendors, et cetera? Those are going to be very important. Um, I would also say another pillar, so I, I, I could also, I could kind of say, Fred, that that was number one, if you will. Number two is going to be learning more and using the enterprise risk management model. And as a, as a subset of that, the enterprise security risk management model. Um, I'm still learning a lot about that, but I think understanding how internal audit Who is likely the owner of that? It may not be in your organization, but if they are, that's another key stakeholder. Understanding how your company looks at risk. They may be willing to accept some risk that you wouldn't in a previous life or in a previous job. So understand that is a key pillar. And then, third, I would say understand how to build a center of excellence model. You're likely, like I said at the beginning, going to have to do more with less as it relates to your program and so how can you hang your hat on the right things to be able to be seen as like security as a service in a way so whether it's the governance side being uh, being the one that's going to be developing policies and therefore structured Training around what those policies are and how you implement the policies? Or if it's like your conformance to those policies, are you going to get involved in going out and engaging with your facility management colleagues or your workplace colleagues and seeing if those footprints that you have around the world? are conforming to your standards. And then you, as the SME, get to build those remediation plans with them to be executed so that you can uh, avoid any problems with uh, official internal audits or even customer audits that may come down the, the line. So I think those are probably more than three, but there's probably three buckets you could pull out of those, uh, those topics.
0: Yeah, that's very prudent advice uh, for those listening. And Nathan, you know, it it seems like I spent a lifetime uh, going out investigating horrible events that that happened to our facilities and personnel around the globe. And, and we were always a day late and a dollar short in, in many ways um, trying to prevent acts of terrorism or, or major espionage cases against us. And as you look at your role today at a, at a such a dynamic uh, and innovative company, and you look out over the horizon. What threats do you think loom that uh, perhaps people aren't thinking about?
1: Hmm, the ones that they're not thinking about. I think. I think the easy answer to that one, which doesn't really fit into the people aren't thinking about it because it's 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 right on the tip of the tongue now, is the artificial intelligence side. But I would say um, when I talk about artificial intelligence, I am a pragmatic, but optimist as it comes to AI. Uh, The reason being is I've seen the benefit of how you can use it internally to accent your human elements in such very powerful ways inside of a team. So whether it's like uh, being able to use it to to, um, to either translate something uh, in real time, which of course, you know, I, I can get into how we do that inside of our own uh, tool, um, but it's not a sales call here. But the, the way that AI can both Create threats to security uh, teams or to companies that are therefore adjudicated and mitigated by security teams, but also how it can help security teams to scale their small teams to uh, to be more valuable to the company. That's that's a big one. Um, I would also say I think, and I think um, you, one of your previous um, uh, visitors, uh, Ryan Schofield from uh, HiveWatch, had talked about this too in his podcast about the preponderance of data that's out there. And it's not that that's new, but it is the ability to do things with that data is getting easier and easier. And that kind of segues from the AI discussion, really. But operationalizing the data that you have uh, internally to be able to predict, maybe better to your point of saying, you know, getting there late, how can you more easily model potential scenarios that give you a heads up to say there may be something that I need to look at. And a lot of times to me with my technology background that is an easy use case as it relates to access control and and video camera systems. So the ability for us to very easily quantify, you know, alarm data plus plus uh, video data to show an event that's happened at one of your sites, if you've designed the site right, if you've designed the systems right, you have them working the way that they're supposed to, you can model that stuff out very easily and you can go from if A and B happened, I know D always happens, so I don't have to go to C this time. I can, I can predict and be in front of D happening. So I think those are some of the things that you're going to see happening inside of um, innovative companies and how they leverage security operations in the future.
0: Nathan, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to say? Um,
1: you didn't ask me about that story of going on the air bridge from Cyprus <laughs> into Beirut. Is that something that we should talk about I, or not? I'd no.
0: love to hear that story again. <laughs> uh, feel free to share that one. That's a good one.
1: <laughs> well, it's, it's funny, Fred. You know, the... Um, I've heard your name a lot, and I've, I've seen that you've uh, written some books, and now they're on my short list to read currently. And sitting next to you at the table, that was an exciting opportunity to kind of just uh, realize. And I felt very uh, empowered by that conversation. And I, I appreciate you calling me a unicorn. I don't think I'm a unicorn, but I appreciate the validation that I may come from a different background. But the the story is when I my first overseas assignment was in Cairo, Egypt, and as a security engineering officer, we were always regional. So I, from Cairo, was taking care of the technology program in all of North Africa and the Middle East, uh, including the Levant, and it also included Cyprus, actually, up in the in the sea in the Mediterranean Sea. Well, within weeks of my arrival in Cairo, there was a war that was breaking out in the Levant, and. We had an uh, American evacuation happening out of Beirut, Lebanon, and that was in my region. So my really my first trip ever to Beirut was to go up through Cyprus and get onto a helicopter that was run by the uh, UK military, which was standing up this air bridge that had happened or had originally happened, I guess, in the 80s, right? And you can probably tell more of, of those yeah. stories. Yeah, sure. um, so I got to go on this, this, uh, this helicopter across across the Mediterranean Sea. But what was happening is, you know, you wait a while, you get on this, this uh, helicopter. I'm not experienced, but I've got my flak jacket and my helmet on. And I'm in, you know, decent looking clothes, not uh, military clothes by any means. And I'm just flying and I start to nod off because it's I don't know, about an hour flight, give or take. I can't remember. Um, but the the hum of the helicopter was putting me to sleep. So I start to relax a little bit. Then all of a sudden, one of the young um, soldiers from the the UK jumps up. They open the side door and he starts shooting out the window. You know, <laughs> and I'm like, woke of course woke up uh, belligerently and had no idea what was happening. I was like, oh my gosh, are we going down? Is this the end? What's happening? Um, and then he sits back down just calmly. And we're all like looking around, like what? What just happened? And he goes, "Oh, we, you know, we use these as training runs too. So I just had to expend some ammo out the out the window." <laughs> and we're like, "You couldn't tell us that before we got on the helicopter? Are you kidding me?" <laughs> so um, that was my my first foray into foreign service. Was uh, be ready for everything, maybe?
0: Yeah, no doubt he did that on purpose, Nathan.
1: No doubt. I bet you he has stories he's telling now of how many young foreign service officers he made. Soiled their pants on that, on that <laughs> during that time frame.
0: Well, it's been uh, a sheer pleasure to be able to chat with you today, Nathan, on the Ontic Protective Intelligence podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Fred. It's been a pleasure myself.
0: This episode was brought to you by the OnTIC Center for Connected Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monteverdi Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke and Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcasts at or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. Thanks for listening.